All right, everybody. Welcome to episode two: reprogramming breaks and government shutdown. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, Yosef? Hey, man. It's uh, nice to be back. We're doing uh, pretty well online, I see. Uh, thanks uh, to all yeah. our subscribers out there, especially on iTunes. If you guys give us a good rating, we very much appreciate the feedback. I'm sure it's going to get nasty, though. It always does on the internet. <laughs> yeah, we're, but we're as scientists, we're, we're used to nasty reviews. I feel like we get those a lot when we try to publish our papers and write our grants, so no problem. Be honest. We'll, we'll, we're open to it. But yeah, Yosef, we got iTunes moved us up to the uh, new and noteworthy section. We were on that list uh, yesterday morning. I was real excited. There's a good response, so uh, I'm really happy. So we're hoping to keep bringing you this uh, this show with some knowledge and some some good scientists. This this uh, episode, we got a really great scientist. We're going to interview Dr. Jacob Hanna towards the end of the show. He's going to talk about a paper. Uh, but uh, I think for now, we should we should kick it off. I think Yosef's going to start with a little bit of a science roundup, give us a little bird's eye view into the world of science outside the stem cell arena before we dive into stem cells. What do you got over there, man? Well, uh, before the I get into the science rundown, I just want to thank Dr. Noblick uh, for the interview he gave last week. Um, if you don't remember, that was the, not the in vivo re- That was that mini brain paper. The you mini brain right cerebral uh, cerebellar organoids. organoids. So he, he did a great job. And um, I never got to tell, my, tell the joke that I saw about that, uh, that paper that Jay Leno uh, did on his monologue. That's how much, you know, the mini brains headline. He was saying, scientists have created mini brains in a dish. And then he said afterwards, that don't men already have a version of these? Half the population already has a version of these mini brains. So I never got to tell Dr. Noblick the joke, but um, I so wanted it made it to. All the way, it made it all the way to Leno, huh? Yeah, yeah. So you never know where your research is going to wow, go. It could be a punchline someday. But anyhow, so going to the science rundown. Uh, let me... I, rundown, baby. Yeah, I was just uh, reading about... Uh, these, remember, I mentioned the uh, the fecal transplants last week. The re- uh, the, 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 the repopulation. Yes, yes. So uh, scientists actually this week from Canada came out. Remember, I mentioned C. difficile. Uh, they had come out with uh, a way of instead of a fecal transplant, they're able to give a pill that will essentially they give uh, antibiotics, wipe out the bacteria, and then. Um, give you these triple coated pills that uh, don't really open until they reach your colon and are so you're not burping up you know poop essentially oh. and it's it, and the bacteria essentially repopulate the colon and can uh, you know take over from the bad bacteria the C difficile and this it's really important I mean people who have C difficile they're you know they can't eat they spend half their you know evenings in the bathroom and they don't go out because it's it's just it, it takes like, over it's, their it's, lives it's like, is it like it's like amoebic dysentery it's not that bad it's just it's like a, i mean it, it could kill you actually so geez, uh awful, yeah man. yeah so, so this may be a new treatment that's in pill form so you have to swallow like 25 to 30 pills but it's in one sitting and essentially you repopulate without the you know the the surgery so that's that's, that's good this, uh, i mean yeah great but i still get trying to get over that idea of putting poop in my mouth anyway go ahead now so uh <laughs> scientists at the university of copenhagen published in plus one um uh, they looked at a bunch of pigs and they were about a thousand uh pigs and they were looking at the greedy pigs and did essentially a gwas study a genome-wide association screen and uh, they found about 14 SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms, in the genome associated uh, with strong association to essentially being greedy and fat ass and whatever, you know. So, so, so it's not like you can't blame the pig if he's just a, a greedy fat ass pig sitting there <laughs> eating everyone else's slop? Well, essentially the pig inherited from its mom, it's a genetic association with being greedy and fat. So, uh, given that pigs have, you know, similar intestines and a close genome to ours, it may point to uh, some associations in humans as well. So, that's interesting. It's in PLOS, you know, Public Library of Science, correct? 
Yeah, I, you know, I got to tell you, that Plus One Journal is a pretty good journal. I mean, it's an, you know why I like it? I'm going to publish there. I like it because it's, it's, it's open access, right? So everybody can read every article, which I think is important. Uh, and there's, you know, because it's all online, they can do lots of, lots of turnover, lots of issues, which means they can handle a lot more submissions and it helps to get the science out. Um, it's a pretty good peer review process, too. I like that journal. Uh, I know people, you know, the impact factor is not so high, but sometimes, um, you need a good, uh, solid, reputable, open access journal where you know you can go, you can read every single journal, uh, every single paper, and and kind of you know it's all tracked. It watches your metrics for you. You can see how many people have wa- read your paper. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty good journal. Well, I don't don't you have to get recommended, or is that the PNAS? Oh, oh, that's P- something. P-Nas. That's PNAS. Yeah, okay. PNAS. So the Proceedings in the National Academy yes. of Sciences. Okay. Yes. So, uh, anyhow. Uh, moving on, there was, uh, I think this was in February, they discovered that they can use EEG to sort of figure out when patients come out of anesthesia. So, uh, you know, right now it's it's hard to tell when somebody's coming out of something like that. So uh, this is an unbiased way of doing that. So you never know where so, there's a need, but this may be filling a void by just doing brain scans to get a signature of when somebody's essentially woken up from so surgery. For everybody, for everybody out there, EEG is an electroencephalography, right, Yos, I believe? I um, believe so, they, yeah. They record the electrical activity. That's um, where essentially you wear, you wear that helmet, the, the crazy helmet with the wires yeah, coming yeah, off of it. Yeah, with the little it, wires, yeah, It exactly. looks like a, a, a soccer ball or something, a bucky ball. <laughs> I've actually worn one. Yeah, you know, I, at, the, at the, the Society for Neuroscience uh, conferences, sometimes they have it on display. You can put it on and stuff. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, back I feel like when, they're like sucking the life out of my soul through my brain or something. Back when I had dreadlocks, they didn't want to even put that on me because yeah, it, they're like nah. yeah, yeah. It, plus, it looks stupid. Anyhow, um, there was a federal. Uh, this actually, there was a study about acne. Believe it or not, back to commensalates. Uh, so they did a study where they looked at uh, different swabs on people with acne and without. And what they found was there wasn't necessarily a bad a- uh, bacteria associated with uh, acne, but there was definitely a good bacteria associated with people who did not have acne, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah. And there's so many. There's like 16 different, you know, uh, ones that they discovered. And there's so much bacteria and commensalates. It's amazing how diverse our bodies are uh, considering. So, so you don't think we'll ever, ever get rid of acne then, right? I mean, acne's around forever. It's one of those things that we're just not going to get rid of. Well, maybe. Like magic bullet. Well, well, what if you could put this bacteria into a product and into a cream so that, you know, Never, never discount that in the future. So uh, that could be some something be we'll cool. see in the future. Um, let's see here. They did another GWAS study, a genome-wide association screen, showing that there was no gene for handedness. Um, mm. Yeah. So if you're right-handed or left-handed, something happened maybe epigenetically, but definitely not in the core of the genome. Uh, moving on, uh, there was also an atomic force microscopy image of uh, the hydrogen bond, which was the first visualization wow. of the hydrogen bond. Uh, bond. This was in Science Magazine. If you see the image, it is gorgeous. It is, I mean, it looks just like the models that you see, and you know that like sort of pentagram or hexagonal uh, image. It, it actually, no, it's more of a hexagram. It's it's a six-sided uh, ring that they were able to image, uh, Chinese scientists. So the first uh, image of a hydrogen bond uh, using atomic force microscopy, which just sounds cool. Where was this published, Joseph? Science Magazine. This is wow, the real deal. This is the wow, real that's, deal. That's that's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. So go physicist. The uh, I guess is that even quantum? I I don't know what you call that. But I don't they, even know, man. Physicists are badass, though. That's all I know. They're yeah, badass. Yeah. Um. Let's see here. Muck two. This gene M U C two in mucus. Uh, scientists were able in science again another science paper. Which uh, for those of you who are not in the science world, uh, science and nature are about as good as it gets, and uh. The whole publishing process, they had the highest impact factor, which is, uh, what's the analogy? It's like the Oscars of our fields. 
right? Yeah, it's basically like how how many times people are reading and then citing uh, work. And so the higher the impact factor, meaning basically if you publish your paper there, it's more likely going to have an impact on the field. So um, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like it's like what you shoot for. It's the goal. It's the award. It's it's the Oscar. Okay, so they, uh, in science, again, this paper, um, so the mucus in the gut is what, you know, protects us from all the bacteria, um, and uh, they found that this uh, gene is what gives the mucus its its protective qualities, so uh, that's why I made it into science, this study. Very cool. And last but not least, my favorite character in neuroscience which is Eric Kandel. I love this man. He's the Nobel Prize winner. Um, just how old is he? He looks like he's just the old wise man. And um, he's, Oh, man, he's he, older. He's got to be older. He's like I mean, 80, I think, and he's still so prolific. He just uh, published about, um, I, I forget which, I think it was Neuron, but I may be wrong about that. But he, he published a paper on... Um, memory and alzheimer's disease essentially and what they were able to show was uh this this binding partner to kreb and uh you know the cbp the kreb binding protein um they found that in mice they discovered a gene called rb8048 is one of the major partners in uh essentially making memories and is highly susceptible in alzheimer alzheimer's so is one of the first genes to go in uh their model and i i forget how they did it i don't think it was a tau model um but it may have been it's definitely an uh beta a beta he's really into the a beta theory because uh if you look at tau it's not really producing alzheimer's as much as a beta so um this this protein that's essentially one of the culprits of alzheimer's disease um he was found that rb i wish this gene had a better name but rb8048 um is one of the major players and actually a binding partner uh with uh cbp which is the Krebs binding protein which is essentially uh why he got the nobel prize was uh discovering how memories are formed in the sea slug aplasia i think it is called he was able to show how in the most basic system how memories are formed which you know it's really complicated and it's amazing how much memories are who we are until you realize that it's it, it, it's hard to appreciate the work but um by the formation of memories, which he was able to show through, I guess, first it's AMPA receptors and then NMDA receptors. It's it's an upregulation and you get an extension of long-term potentiation and all the stuff, LTP, as we uh, neuroscientists call it. And uh, it's kind of, it's very complicated, but he outlined the whole process of memory formation. And uh, this is uh, going beyond that and looking into uh, Alzheimer's and uh, memory loss of memory essentially so that's uh, awesome yeah he's good, still good, he, dude, he's good still for him man he's 83 by the way i just looked that up he's 83 years old he won the nobel prize in 2000 and he so. wrote the bible of neuroscience essentially like the the you know uh what's the book for molecular biology bruce albert i think it's uh, cell? Uh, is it cell- the cell. cellular the cell yeah it's it's like that except for neuroscientists the uh principles in or of neuroscience uh is the most comprehensive neuroscience book and he wrote it he's the he, i love him and if you ever heard him laugh it's the funniest thing in the world <laughs> eric candel's laugh have you ever heard him laugh I, no, I haven't heard him laugh. He does it at least once in every interview, and it is—it's so unique. You've never heard anybody laugh like that. Wait, well, then of, you know what? Maybe we'll have to get Dr. Kendall to do the stem cell podcast one day, and we can get him to laugh live on our show. I would love to have him on the show. I'm sure you would too. That'd be pretty fantastic. I—I I don't think you'd be able to handle his laugh. It's—it's—it's <laughs> it's, it's more of a. <gasps> It's more of a breathing in than an out. It's like, ah, it's it's so unique. You just have to see an interview with him. He's always on Charlie Rose, actually. He does They did a great brain series 
on his show that you can uh, download online. I highly recommend it. It's it's about uh, I think it's a twelve part part series on various uh, neurodegenerative diseases. He he goes over Alzheimer's, uh, MS, uh, stroke, uh, PTSD. He's uh, it's it's actually really good. And they interview uh, specialists in each of those fields. So um, yeah. That's that's it for the cool, science man. wrap good, up, good, man. Good good for him, man. That that's pretty awesome. Thanks for that wrap up. That's really cool. I all I, I'm I'm thinking about is that uh, is that pooping pill. I mean, I really hope that it helps people. I really do. But that's that's my shining light for that thing. Yeah, I mean, you said last time that it would have to be something really serious for you to have a fecal and apparently transplant. and it is. So good for them. I yeah. mean, good for them. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna knock it because I don't have the problem. So. Um, all right, man. Well, let's 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 switch gears to uh, some stem cell stuff. I'm just gonna really quick, like rapid fire, go through real quick two papers that were both in Cell Stem Cell. Um, it's a Cell Press Journal, the top tier for the stem cell uh, as of right now. I should say the top tier stem cell journal. Um, this is really interesting, Yosef. You you grow embryonic stem cells, and so do I. And I'm, I'm sure a bunch of people in the audience do. But for people that don't, they're very difficult to grow. I always akin them to. Uh, having children, it's kind of like taking care of a child. Uh, you have to treat them with, a, give them a lot of attention, uh, and take care of them really well. Make sure they're well fed and rested, because if not, they'll just freak out on you in any day. They're just very sensitive. They die very frequently, and they can do weird things. And so I, this, I like this, to make sure sorry. they look good. Yeah, they have to look good. I agree. <laughs> they have make to sure they're look properly. Good. They have to be properly groomed. Actually, uh, the, those of you looking at our stem cell podcast logo, those are the red uh, cells in in the image there. And the mouse embryonic fibroblasts are the little grayish white cells. The red ones are the human embryonic cells. And they're very pretty, I might add, well-groomed. Yes. And that's how you want to keep them. Yeah, you want to keep them flat, no holes in the middle with, uh, you know, all no sorts donuts. of... Yeah, no donuts. You do not want donuts, that's for sure. <laughs> so, and so, so, so what we're talking about here, no donuts, no holes in the middle, is because they're really unstable. So this group, uh, the first author is Julia Liu, uh, and the, uh, the corresponding authors, the senior authors, were pa- Paul LaRue and Galit Lahav, and they were at Harvard, it looks like, and uh, let's see, Dana-Farber. Uh, so what the name of the paper is High Mitochondrial Priming Sensitizes Human Embryonic Stem Cells to DNA Damage-Induced Apoptosis. So what, what does all that mean, really? So apoptosis is cellular cell death. It's, it's like cell suicide. It's when the cell kills itself because something is wrong and it just saves it. And it's, you know, it says, I'm, there's something wrong, i got to die. And so human embryonic stem cells are very, very susceptible to this cell death, right? So what they found was uh, that human embryonic stem cells undergo more rapid P53, which is a, a protein that's involved in apoptosis. Uh, they undergo more rapid P50, P53-dependent apoptosis after DNA damage than a differentiated cell, like a skin cell, right? And so you're like, all right, that makes sense. That's obvious. So they looked, though, and they found no differences in P53 localization or expression, so that couldn't account for it. But what, this, what they found was that in a cell, and I really didn't know this, Yost, that there's this balance between pro and anti-apoptotic proteins. So you have a whole bunch of proteins that are you know, uh, against apoptosis pathway, and then there's a whole bunch of proteins that are for the apoptosis pathway, and it works on like a seesaw. And if it tips more towards the pro-apoptotic pathway, they're going to die. And what so are these what, uh, cell check genes, the CDKs, or what are, what are what are we talking about? It's just a yeah, whole, they, a whole yeah, cluster, just, or uh, no? They just looked at they just looked at a few um, P27 uh, KIP or whatever. What's that one that always shows up? P27 KIP. They look. Uh, they look for. They look for one called Puma and you know Bax, the BAX gene. Oh, the and, BCL2. All these. Yeah, like crazy. yeah, those things. So yeah. those things. So they form like these like little complexes. And so what they found is that in human embryonic stem cells, the balance is way more tipped to pro apoptotic as compared to a differentiated cell, which is way more tipped to the anti apoptotic. So let's say you have the same sort of like stimulus that you know dna damage stimuli you're much more likely to die if you're an embryonic stem cell because your balance is skewed uh towards apoptosis so it's almost like it's like a conservation mechanism in the embryo where it's ready it's like look if something's going wrong we're gone 
this is, we're not going to start off development on the wrong track. Or just um, they're more sensitive in general. They're sensitive to being fed and they're sensitive to dying. I don't know. Like, well, how are they inducing apoptosis in this paper? I think they just do some uh, different different sorts of uh, stress. And I, I mean, I, I don't know the details of the whole thing. I just kind of know the crux of it. And I just think what their, their point is that... Um, um, you know, there's this mitochondrial priming effect, Interesting. Um, and and you can you, it's potentially gone wrong. And so, if you think about it from a cancer angle, right, cells that are refractory to apoptosis, well, maybe you can skew that back to behave more like an embryonic stem cell, and then we'll be more susceptible to death and to treatment and things like this. So, I think they're trying to go that way with it. So, it's cool. It's just cool to to, to see uh, things that we notice in the dish um, and mechanisms behind that. And so they have some implications for it. So I thought that was a pretty, and we should also mention what mitochondria are. They're essentially the lungs of the cell. They, they're the powerhouse. They produce all the, the essential energy for the, the cell. They actually have their own DNA. They are their own, uh, what, what do they call it? The symbiosis of the, the mitochondria, how it got in the cell. It was like its own, species and then it got taken into the cell and uh incorporated into the the you know many structures of the cell it's it's sort of this foreign element and everybody inherits their dna from their mother which is uh, the 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 mitochondrial dna maternal yeah yeah Yeah. that's how they sequence back to the first woman (laughs) i think uh they were able to give the Adam and Eve, uh, it, it all goes back to this one Eve mitochondria. Good old Eve. Yeah. <laughs> and well, uh, they, I, all, they, 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 teach, they teach us and they taught us back in the day in science class that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I remember that's what they call it, the powerhouse of the cell. It's true. Without the mitochondria, you ain't got nothing. Yeah, you, need your mito- you need your mitochondria. So um, one more quick thing because we got Dr. Jacob Hanna coming aboard real soon. Um, uh, this is also in cell, cell stem cell. And I thought this was really cool, Yosef, because um, this is involves the pituitary gland. And we don't really hear about this a lot in the world of stem cell uh, research. Um, so um, the pituitary is an endocrine gland, right? And it's involved in maintaining our body homeostasis. and It's really it small. It's like the size really of a pea. It's really, it, it's really it's underneath the hypothalamus, right? It's, it's at the very bottom, very bottom, and so it 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 it's a very it's like a very master regulator of hormonal function and homeostasis. And so the top the title of the paper was "Mobilized Adult Pituitary Stem Cells Contribute to Endocrine Regeneration in Response to Physiological Demand." It's out of London. Kareen Rizzotti is the and uh, it's uh, the lab of Robin Lovell Badge. Basically, just real quick, what they saw um, was that they found stem cells in the pituitary gland. They were able to isolate them out, grow them in vitro in the culture dish, culture dish, excuse me, expand them. They express markers like SOX2, SOX9. Uh, and then what they do is they take them back and they can lineage. They put, they mark them and they put them back into the pituitary. They put them back in vivo and they watch them and, you know, cause they're, they're traced and they do lineage tracing experiments. that could find that they can contribute to, uh, they can differentiate and contribute to, to where they go. And they can, they also show that if they somehow stress or, or do something to insult the pituitary region, they'll activate even more and differentiate better. And so what they think is that there's this, there's this endogenous reservoir of pituitary stem cells, and if they can harness the power of those, they can possibly activate them and turn them on, proliferate, and differentiate. And this is really important because growth hormone deficiency is a, becoming a very frequent problem. I think it's what says 1 in 3,500 and 10,000 births have it and it causes it's a significant morbidity rate and so they're hoping that if they can figure out a way to activate these stem cells in vivo um, so they can actually contribute and help out a loss of uh, hormone release and this is really new this is really like a hot thing because I don't think it was ever really previously directly shown that there were stem cells existing in this in this kind of organ so that's that's really cool really yeah the excited. pituitary I think uh, the going theory now I was just listening to on the radio some guys say that uh, it was I think it was Malcolm Gladwell in his new book uh, he was saying that um, the David and Goliath story, a lot of doctors or scientists think that uh, Goliath actually had hyper, like a tumor. I forget what it's called, but when they have a tumor growing near the pituitary and essentially have these giant humans who are, you know, uh, some people think even Abraham Lincoln had it. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing what that little P can do in terms of affecting the size of a human. Um, you could get these, you know, eight foot tall behemoths and, um, 
that's all due to something as simple as a tumor growing or nudging up against the pituitary gland. So um, that's what I got, man. I got these two little touches, and I think now we're going to move to uh, to the big paper of the uh, of the episode. Yeah. So why don't you introduce our next interviewee? All right, yo. So I'm really excited to do this paper today. Okay, I saw this in Nature. Uh, it's in the October third. Says third on the article, but it was out released online a little bit earlier. Okay, so the name of this paper is deterministic. That word I love, by the way, deterministic direct reprogramming of somatic cells to pluripotency. Uh, and the senior author in, is Dr. Jacob Hanna, and they're in the Weissman Institute in Israel. And we have uh, Dr. Jacob Hanna on board today on the line with us to give us a rundown of the paper and where these implications will go. So. Welcome aboard, Dr. Hanna. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for the interest. All right. So, really cool paper. Um, really in a really hot field, reprogramming, uh, and and uh, a lot of cool implications technically and also biologically. Uh, so let's just kind of jump right in. If you wouldn't mind, just quickly giving our audience a little background on your lab, what you study, and then how this paper kind of fits in, and just just kind of give us a rundown of the main findings here. So yeah, our lab is mainly focused uh, on understanding the mechanisms and principle of the reprogramming of somatic cells, such as skin cells, back to pluripotent cells. As many of you may know, this was a great breakthrough by Yamanaka in 2006, where he described that uh, a certain combination of four transcription factors, um, they're called OCT4, SOX2, KL4, and MYC, let's just say OSKM, that if they are expressed in adult cells, they can convert them after a period of a week to three weeks into pluripotent cells. Um, and since then, there's been a great uh, interest in, in identifying different combinations of factors that lead to iPS cells, characterizing the iPS cells functionally, and so on. Uh, but what we've been trying to understand is really why only of the f- a fraction of the cells converts into uh, iPS cells. So the conventional method, the Yamanaka approach, um, we call the reprogramming as being stochastic, meaning if we take, let's say, 100 cells and we expose them to the factors, we cannot a priori predict which of the cells and when they can convert into iPS cells. And what in our lab, uh, we've been trying to tackle this problem from many different angles and to kind of summarize a very long story, we decided to examine whether there are certain repressors uh, or enzymes that uh, inhibit gene expressions are the ones that are inhibiting uh, robust uh, and synchronized reprogramming. And we did uh, a screen um, for such factors, and we identified uh, MBD3 as such component. Uh, MBD3 is a component of the NERD deacetylase and chromatin remodeling complex. The MBD3 NERD is a repressor complex. And what we found is that if we inhibit MBD3 expression um, in somatic cells or in other cell types, um, uh, such as germ cells, and then express the Yamanaka factors, then the cells proceed synchronously. Uh, We achieve up to 100% synchronized IPS uh, uh, in mouse cells and in some human cells that we've engineered in the lab. Um, so this has it's been exciting for us also to study mechanistically because what we see is that MBD3 repressor is actually expressed in every cell type in the body except in the first three days in development. And what we see when we express the Yamanaka factors, they are the ones that are recruiting this repressor. So we like to make the analogy that when we are reprogramming in the Petri dish, we're almost like driving a car while stepping on the gas and the brakes pedals at the same time. Versus in development, this is much more synchronized. So the pluripotency or the Yamanaka factors are expressed in the early development, but MBD3 is selectively depleted in development so that development progresses and embryo develops and MBD3 comes on to exit pluripotency state. So this nicely synchronized and choreographed dynamics of uh, MBD3 expressions, if we mimic them in vitro, we can really achieve the robustness that we can typically see in vivo. 
So you so essentially that, took the brakes off of the reprogramming process. You can look at it. We're kind of uh, taking the handbrakes down, basically. Oh, okay, <laughs> great. Um, so is the, I was just curious, is there a human homologue of this gene? Yes, so there is an MBD3, and we've engineered cell lines that become hypomorphic for MBD3. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we make differentiate cells from them and reprogram them, they reprogram also at a radically efficient um, rates. It's actually, we've looked at the evolutionary conservation, MBD3 and OCT4, and you will see that they are both conserved and appeared from the first multicellular organism. Um, so we really suggest that with the, with with the formation of multicellular organisms, there was a need to make a pluripotent ground state, which from which you can generate every cell type in the organism, and perhaps pluripotency. You need the mechanisms to induce it, such as the pluripotency factors, and you need potent repressors to exit that state. And I think that's MBD3. So that is what I was our hypothesis, and we're currently really examining the implication of inhibiting MBD3 in different species and whether this would allow us to capture different types of pluripotent cells. So very cool. So, so I just have uh, a question. So this paper is very cool to me in two different aspects. First, you have a, an obvious technical uh, achievement here, right? So mm -hmm. like you said, a limitation has always been programming is remarkably inefficient, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that would be a technical feat that you've conquered, mm -hmm. right? Okay, and the other, the other side to that is a, a true biological uh, phenomena, so why it is that it's so efficient. So, so you kind of have you know, these two aspects of the paper. So just quickly on the technical aspect, yeah. I, I, I would envision if somebody wants to use this kind of technique technically, forget about the biological piece, yeah. I would think the, most, the, the easiest, quickest way would be to put the four Yamanaka, Yamanaka factors in all plus genes, and then you would basically use a, some sort of shRNA, siRNA technique transiently to get rid of this gene at the same time in a, in a sort of acute uh, reprogramming protocol, if you, if you will. So have you, have, you, have you tried this out? Is, does it work as efficiently, or do you do need a, a, a more complete you know, reduction of this protein? So yeah, no, we, we've actually done that, and we included some of that in the paper. Uh, indeed, we can uh, if, we, if you acutely deplete uh, by siRNA and MBD3, you can dramatically boost the process. Of course, you know, if you want to make the point of, you know, 100%, it's very hard to get this by primary transfections and things like that. Right. But again, you, can, you know, you get away with 50% efficiency and, and, and depends on how many doses of, of MBD3 knockdown. But, but, but that's definitely, and we technically describe, you know, how when to introduce the knockdown, we recommend after 48 hours. Uh, but, uh, but yes, it definitely boosts. We saw data boost iPSC formation by mRNA transfections. And also when in the lab, if you use just plasmid DNA transfections, also it's, it's a big booster. What about uh, chemical inhibitors of MBD3? Is, uh, are there any known inhibitors uh, of this gene? Unfortunately not. I wish there was, because if there was such a thing exactly, I would just introduce it 48 hours afterwards, and it's a big booster for pluripotency. And maybe it will even very be important for, as I said, main, even maintenance of pluripotent cells. Uh, well, there's no, there's very, there's, there are no known characterized inhibitors of MBD3. In fact, the crystal structure of the complex is, is limited, and we're currently pursuing that. Great. Uh, Chris, did you have any more questions? You know, the one, one last thing, uh, Jacob, just for maybe, maybe myself, you know, so I can get greedy mm -hmm. and ask for myself here. Um, <laughs> you, you use uh, these, uh, you do gene editing with these tail nuclease effectors. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm not, this technology to me is kind of new. Can you just really quickly explain to me how this works? Is it feasible for people to do in the lab? Definitely. I think the, the, the genome editing field is, is undergoing a dramatic revolution. Uh, it started with the... Uh, zinc finger nuclease or now the tailing nuclease or, or the CRISPR systems, generally these are systems where we harness the knowledge from uh, naturally produced proteins or enzymes that can recognize specific sequences of DNA and then we can fuse such proteins artificially to nucleases and basically direct them to cut or edit specific loci on, in the human or other species genomes. So, so the, these are techniques are becoming very routine. 
Um, some of them suggest the tail is a little bit challenging because it involves multiple rounds of molecular cloning, but nothing really exceptionally hard. Now the, the CRISPR system is even technically even much easier. Uh, but again, any lab, I think just minimal investment in, uh, in, in setting it up. Uh, it's, it's really useful and it, relatively very easy to establish. How worried are you for off-target effects with the, these systems? They all seem to be, uh, to have this sort of, you know, off-target yeah. gene replacement is, is not really so precise yeah. right now. Uh, what do you... Uh, I think, um, I, I, you know, again, it is not my field, main field of expertise. Uh, it, it, you know, currently seems that the tail end nuclei are relatively high, relatively specific. Even the CRISPR systems, there's been recent brilliant work by Feng Zhang, who's a little bit even modified these enzymes to reduce the off-specific targets. So I think these these technical challenges will be re solved uh, very soon to reach uh, you know to reach very satisfying levels. Yeah, definitely for research purposes. I agree. I agree. So uh, I think uh, we could wrap it up there, unless uh, you have any other burning questions, Chris. No, I don't. I was a really awesome study, and uh, so th so thank you for summarizing that for for the audience. Uh, Yos, you uh, want to take the next question here? Yeah, so, um, you know, we'd like to get our audience excited about uh, the uh, potential of stem cell uh, technology and therapies. And uh, so we'd like to ask our interviewees uh, where they think the next cures or therapies from stem cells may come from, not necessarily uh, directly in your field, but just what's uh, closest to the horizon uh, that you see uh, potential for. Um yeah, I think uh, well, while, while putting a disclaimer that I'm not a prophet, but I, I think uh, <laughs> it is likely that we will start seeing uh, advances in transplantation, perhaps in, in liver um, uh, regeneration, just because there are now you know up and coming very nice differentiation protocols, and the liver is an organ that you know can tend to be you know receive well transplanted cells. Um, also, I think the recent advances in germ cell in vitro differentiation can uh, can may lead to rapid advances over the next two or three years. Uh, having said all of this, it's really really important that you know these studies uh, um, uh, will be done very carefully, and um, and, and so not, not as for us as a field, not to allow greed and hastiness to do um, rapidly transplantation experiments that might be dangerous. So I think it's, it's exciting, but we have to go slowly and um, uh, carefully. Okay, great. I think you also got an email, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, it's okay. Um, so and I, l I love when those things happen, you know. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, we'd like to ask uh, you to share uh, with our audience maybe a funny story or just a good story from either your graduate school work or postdoc work or uh, even as a professor. Yeah, I think... What came to mind to me now um, uh, is a story when I was a postdoc, um, I was working on a project that partly talked about the role of P53 in reprogramming, and as we were trying to conclude our studies, uh, I, I was scooped by five uh, papers that came out in Nature. And I remember going uh, up the elevator at work, you know, being very yellow-faced and um, uh, upset and running into David Bartel in the elevator who asked me, you know, well, what's wrong? He could tell that I was in distress. And I said uh, that, you know, I just got scooped by five papers in Nature. Well, and he said, well, what can I say? At least you didn't get scooped by six. <laughs> and by the time I reached my bench, I reached, there was a, I realized there was a sixth paper in genes and development that also <laughs> scooped us. <so. laughs> wow, man. I, but, uh, at the end, uh, at the end, we did okay. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, obviously, you're you're uh, doing pretty well right now. So uh, congratulations on the Nature paper. And uh, I look forward to any more uh, work coming out of your lab and maybe the uh, prospects of MBD3 knockdown. Yeah, th thank, thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it and good with everything else, all right? You're welcome. Thank you for your interest and look forward to, to hearing it. Thank you. Okay, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, Chris. So that was a good interview. What do you think? So it's cool, man. I like it. I do. Um, the scientist in me hates to hear 100%, you know, but I, 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 he had some really cool math and really cool ways that they came about that and how – so I think it was carefully done before they would say that 
Now, the devil's in the details, really, Yos. You know, it's all about how you do this. Like he said, you know, you could probably get a boost using the SIRNA technique. But if you really want to go for the gusto and get 100%, we're talking you need to completely get rid of that gene. And so for – so. Uh, I, I like it. I think biologically it's really cool. It gives you some idea as to why it's so efficient and inefficient. And I think this has been a problem in the field. Why is it so inefficient? You know. Yeah, it seemed to be uh, a lot of people were thinking it's the stochasticity or the actual you need uh, certain cells to be dividing at the right time. It's definitely uh, division seems to be a major part of the process. The cell needs to the somatic cell, the skin cell needs to divide uh, before becoming pluripotent, perhaps. But um, it seems like there's also these breaks that are in control, uh, stopping the whole reprogramming process. So um, it's exciting. Here's the here's the interesting thing, and I, I mentioned this. He uses the word deterministic in the title, and that's very specific, right? I remember determinism from philosophy. It's a philosophical position. It basically determinism for everybody out there that's not familiar is states really that for en- everything that happens there are conditions such that given those conditions nothing else can happen saying is if you get rid of that gene or you know completely and you add in the four yamanaka factors into some somatic cell the only thing that will happen is reprogramming and so that that's a really strong statement yos you know so um they really feel that this is a true break, and this is the thing that's holding it back. So, yeah, I guess we should also say that um, it, it, I I sent you the article, but uh, in the Scientist, I believe it was uh, George Daly sort of caused some skepticism, saying that he had actually tried to knock down MBD three and didn't see the same results, and maybe attributed it to the actual protocols or the culture conditions. So uh, we'll see. Uh, what's going on. I definitely want to want George Daly, uh, uh, you know, saying they couldn't replicate my work, but, um, considering how prolific he is, but this, this paper seems to have, uh, I mean, looking at it in nature, they, they definitely crossed their T's and dotted their I's. Uh, exactly right. And like you said, sometimes it, the devil's in the details and the protocols and, and the different way of doing things. I think George was using a more uh, shRNA uh, screening technique and uh, Dr. Hanna was doing uh, more of a talon-mediated uh, excision. So I, I agree with you. I think the paper seemed uh, complete. There were some experimental things that I would have uh, asked for and asked more questions about. Uh, but I think in all in all, the, the feat is uh, supported. It's important. And uh uh, the conclusions that were made and come out of this are definitely worthy to be in such a high-profile journal. So congrats to uh, the Hanna Lab. And uh, that that sums up our uh, our paper discussion. And yeah, and definitely time for a good rant. And being that it is October, was it the 3rd? It's third. the third day of uh, the government being shut down here in the United States, which means that NASA is closed. The NIH is essentially closed. And um, the state of research, at first we had the sequester, which uh, essentially knocked out 10 to 15 percent of all funding uh, for fiscal year 2013. And now we have this uh, inability for Congress to get its act together. You know, it, uh, this is definitely going to be part of my ramp because right now we have uh, the entire NIH budget is under $35 billion. That's $35,000 million. And um, essentially, the policy for our federal, uh, the Federal Reserve is to give $85 billion to Wall Street to uh, shore up the economy. So I, you know, two weeks of this policy could essentially double the NIH budget. And here we are with a government shutdown and nothing going on. I have a good friend who has a grant at the an NRSA grant, and he is telling me yesterday it's sitting on a desk right now, not being reviewed because of this sort of inability to govern the country. It's it's really quite astounding what's going on. I mean, it's 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 really shameful. I mean, it's terrible. I, I do. I mean, like, and here's the thing, Yos. Weren't we just about what a month ago less listening to our people in power sit around a room debating whether or not we should go to war? You know, like, yeah, you know, maybe we should go to war. Maybe we should bomb this. Come, not, we we can surely just throw kick that around, but we can't. We can't pass a budget. 
we can't come to an, an agreement on something so our government doesn't shut down. I mean, this, this is just ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. It's, it's, it's pathetic. And you're right. You have a lot. Like, for example, this week is NIH R01s due. I have no idea. I, I'm not submitting one. But if I was, I'd be freaking out right now. Yeah. Are they going to postpone the submission? Are the study sessions are going to get pushed back? You know, it, it, PubMed was shut down yesterday, and 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 these are all things that you know that we say kind of influence our life. Yo, how about those? How about those reports of those NIH clinics that got shut down where cancer patients couldn't get their medications and their clinical trial drugs because they were turned away? I mean, I mean, all of NASA is shut down right now. All of NASA is shut down. There is 97% of them are at home. And there are some astronauts probably right now in, the, in space wondering, where did everybody go? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's 3% of people going to work right now just taking care of the essentials, making sure they have oxygen. I don't know. But um, this is no way to conduct uh, a government, let alone a scientific uh, you know, behemoth that is uh, American science. And we, we should uh, just explain maybe uh, briefly what's going on. But essentially, Republicans in the House, uh, right-wing fraction, have essentially held the government hostage by uh, not funding it and um, just so because of Obamacare. And so that's the state of our uh, politic right now. And um, it's, it's really sad. I, I just have to give a quote from Bill Maher here. He said, what could be more responsible than losing an election by 5 million votes and then demanding the president to govern as they would, or else they shut down the government and do not pay our bills? That's essentially what's going on. I want to say, man, like, you know, can I get can I get my tax money back? Like, why am I why? Right. For the whole period of this time where no one's working and nothing's going down. If they can just say, you know what? We're done. Sorry, we're going to shut down the government and we'll just sit here and get paid. I still got to pay those taxes to a government that doesn't work and is not working and can just leave. I can't do that at my job. I can't just be like, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to leave the lab for two months until uh, we figure it out. Nah, I'm just going to go. Yeah, and the worst Happen. part just... of the worst part of it all is the people who are holding this up are still getting paid. They still get their paychecks. Yeah, they get paid, all right. That's for sure. Oh. Uh, it's it's just it's all in all, Yos, it's terrible. It's just awful. I mean, I I don't even know what to say about it. It's it's a it's a great rant topic. I we could probably rant about it forever. And everybody out there, you know, uh, you know, we're we're at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter. Let us know what you think. It's 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 just crazy. It really is. Yeah, it's frustrating, and hopefully it, you know, I want to double the NIH budget. I mean, like two weeks of what we give to Wall Street to play around with, this $85 billion, what they call QE3, quantitative easing. Two weeks of this policy could double all of science in America. We're talking, you know, that that would trickle down more than anything economically, you know, hiring, gra you know, uh, techs and buying equipment and all sort not to mention all the benefits of the actual research that would come from the cures and the pathways and, uh, you know, the molecules, the drugs and everything that gets discovered from just two weeks of this policy. I, I, I just find it amazing that we could double our whole science in America with uh, two weeks of what Wall Street gets to. I don't know what they do with that money. I guess they buy commodities in Brazil or shore up other, uh, uh, you know, Turkish markets. I'm not sure, but I have it, no idea. It, I have no idea what they do. 80, I don't. Eighty five thousand million dollars per month is a lot of money. And all we're asking is about half of that. And we could double all of science in America. It'd be it'd be great. I, I just never hear anybody proposing such a radical thought, but I, I think it needs to be put out there. Um, we need to get our act together in terms of science because this is – I've talked to you know much higher ups and the people who have labs or who work at NIH, they say this it's never been this bad. It hasn't – at least in their tenure. Well – I, I'll leave. I'll leave this discussion out with these points, Yos, and these are staggering. Okay, number one, eighty percent of scientists said they spend more time writing grants now than they did three years ago. Okay. Okay, that's the first. So that just tells you the state of that. Really brilliant people. What are they doing? Writing grants. That's number one. Number two, 
two-thirds, so that's 67%, say they were receiving less grant funding than they did three years ago, right? That's, so that's, that goes along with it. Now, this is crazy, number three, 55%, 55%, more than half, say that they have a colleague who has lost their job or expects too soon. But that's crazy. If you Half, that's nuts. Those are scientists. And then the final one is 20%, one of five scientists are considering leaving this country to, con- to continue their scientific career. One in five. Now, come on. If it's getting to the point where 20% of scientists are actually considering leaving the country, which is supposed to be the best country in the world, and you're going to lose you know, 20% of your brilliant scientists, you got to change some stuff. You better get your act together and give, us, give them some more cash, put them more into this science. Because, man, forget about the medicines and the cures that it brings to everybody. But biotechnology and tech advances are huge for industry. Everybody knows it, including the government. It's just, you know, they're just not giving it to us. Well, we should say this um, Tea Party fraction that's sort of holding this whole funding question up uh, they tend not to believe in science so much. Let's say evolution is questionable in their minds and um, just basic things like carbon being a greenhouse gas is, you know, that's just, you know, that's like saying two plus two equals four. I mean, there's no doubt that CO2 is a greenhouse a heat trapping gas. They don't even believe the basics of not just biology, but physics and the real physical world. So we're at an impasse. We're dealing with, I, I like to call them yahoos. They're just, we're dealing with a bunch of yahoos. And they unfortunately have enough power to shut down government and funding for it's in perpetuity. We have no idea how long this is going to last, but it's no been T minus three days so far or T plus three days of this disastrous uh, state of affairs. And hopefully we can get the NIH to open up again and let's double their budget. That's my, that's my motto. Double the NIH budget. So we hope the next time we're talking to you, we're not ranting about the same topic as if we are. That means that the government is still shut down. People are still not working and NIH is still closed down. So, uh, you know, I, I, I now this is going to bother me for the rest of the day that we talked about <laughs> it. But you know what? Everybody out there is just we're not the only one. So I'm yeah. sure you guys all share in our sentiment anyway. Yeah. Let's end on a positive note um, and and just uh, hopefully get this get this fixed up. So on well, that note. What Thanks, do you think? What do you I think say it was good. I say we wrap it up. I really like that interview. I like that paper. I thought that was nice. I thought that um, I, I think that it was uh, like we talked about a really good finding. And uh, this is this is going to be a hot topic: reprogramming efficiencies in the biology mechanisms of reprogramming. This, I'm sure this won't be the first paper to come out. And his story was funny, Yost. Imagine getting scooped by five papers in Nature. At least you know you're on the right track, right? At least you know your project is on the right track. Yeah, yep. that's crazy. So uh, let's wrap it up there. Thanks to Dr. Hannah, and um, thanks a lot, Chris. All right, yo. So see you on the other side, man. Have a good one. All right. Take care.